Let's turn in Scripture then to Romans chapter 7. Romans 7. Romans 7, verses 1 through 13. So first, verse 1. Or do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives? For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies... She is released from the law concerning her husband, the husband. So then if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, to him, who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the Spirit and not in oldness of the letter. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said thou should, or you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin became alive, and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. Therefore, Did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin. In order that it might be shown to be sin, by effecting my death through that which is good, so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. So far then, the reading of God's word. Dear congregation, I think it is stating the obvious, isn't it? that the life that we live here and the world and the society that we see around us is a life of misery. It's a life full of trouble, of sorrow, and of tears. And I know we enjoy many good things in this life. But you don't have to go far. And before you encounter uh, brokenness and misery, untold misery, and you don't have to go to a prison to see that, although you see plenty of it there. You can go to the schools and the universities of our day. You can go into the families 
right? And we don't have to even go beyond our own heart, mind, and family, do we? Man is born unto trouble as the sparks fly upward, says Job. And he knew it. And what is the cause of this misery? Why do we see so much misery, tears, and suffering on all sides? What is the reason for it? Well, congregation, as we proceed along the path of life, we have come to our first stop this evening. And it's the doctor's office, in a sense, if I can put it that way. It's the physician. We've come to the doctor. We've come to the physician. Why so much misery? Why so many tears? Why so much sickness and suffering in this world? And the doctor comes to us then in the form of the catechism, which says, how do you come to know your misery? Notice the catechism doesn't try to prove that there's misery in the world. All you have to do is be alive to know that, right? But how do you come to know your misery? We've come to the doctor. We want to know, why is there so much misery? Why am I so miserable? And our catechism gives us this very brief answer. The children love this one because it's very easy to memorize, right? The law of God tells me. The law of God tells me. So, the law diagnoses the cause of the misery. And that's why I entitled the sermon this evening, What the Law Does. What does the law do in our life? Well, it exposes the misery. Right? If a person had cancer, and, and, and they, they felt a lump somewhere in their body, right? And, and they went to the doctor, would the doctor just give them an aspirin? Would, it, would he put a Band-Aid on that and say, okay, go home? I actually knew a guy in Grand Rapids who had exactly that. He had a lump in his neck. He just ignored it. He just ignored it. He really did. And he finally died. He wasn't that old of a man. And, uh, but, but that's what happens, right? You can't do that with cancer. What has to happen? That cancer has to be cut out. That wound has to be opened. The cancer has to be removed. And in fact, if all of it isn't removed, it continues to grow and continues to be a problem. And so this is where we come this evening. We come to this place where the doctor is now going to plumb that wound and the law of God is going to expose it so that it can be healed. That's where we're going, right? That's where we're aiming. In congregation, I, I have to say that I even have some, some, some dread about these next two, three, four sermons from the catechism. These are heavy hard sermons to hear. These are not the sermons that grow churches. This is not a popular message in our day. But again, the catechism is not like those false preachers that I started with this morning that say, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Take an aspirin, call me in the morning. Let's put a band-aid on that wound. No, that's not how the catechism will function. The The catechism, our catechism congregation, thank God, is a physician and a faithful physician that is going to open that wound and work for its cure. Jesus was such a physician. And we saw that last week, right? 
when Jesus said to the woman at the well, go call your husband. Why did Jesus want to see her husband? Well, you remember the story, right? She had five husbands. And Jesus exposed her sin. So the law of God does that. It exposes our misery. And so our catechism teaches us, now congregation, does the scripture teach that? What does the scripture say is the function of the law of God? Now as you know for sure that the authors of our catechism took this from the Bible, and that is what I aim to show you this evening. So I'd like you to turn with me then to Romans chapter 7 to see this function, this work of the law. What does the law of God do for us? It exposes our misery. And it exposes the cause of our misery. Now before I get into Romans 7, uh, in Romans 6, you have, well, Romans 7 follows from Romans 6, and it's important to know Romans 6. In, in a nutshell, Romans 6 is telling us that we are joined to Jesus Christ, and that it's the only way that we can gain the victory over sin is by being joined to Christ, by being united to Christ. In a sense, we heard that this morning. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry. And Paul's going to teach that. No victory over sin unless we are joined by faith to Jesus Christ. So when we come to chapter 7, Paul begins here in verses 1 through 6 by using this analogy of a woman who is married to a man. And Paul says, while she's married to that man, she may not be married to another person. She is to be exclusively for that man. Now, should that man die then she's released from her obligation to her husband and she may be married again without committing adultery. Now Paul uses that as an illustration by saying, there you see how naturally we are married to the law. And this is how we are going to earn God's favor by keeping the law. This is what God expects from us, that we keep his commandments perfectly. But, says Paul, that way never works. And he's going to explain why shortly. But he says, thanks be to God. And here the analogy kind of breaks down again, right? Because we wouldn't thank God for our husband dying. But Paul is saying, thank God, we are released from the law of our first husband, the law. Right? In order that we might be married to another. And verse 6, Romans 7, verse 6. But now we have been released from the law. In other words, our first husband, that husband's died. And we're released from any obligation to him having died to that by which we were bound, which was the law, so that we may serve in newness of the Spirit and not in oldness of the letter. And really, that's saying much the same thing as what he said in chapter 6. We have to keep God's law. We're under an obligation to keep God's law. But Paul says we can be married to the law and try to keep it, but that always fails. But here Paul says there's a better way to keep the law of God, and that is to be married to Christ to be joined to Christ. Because when we're joined to Christ, we receive the gift of the Spirit of God. Now you can try to keep this, the, the law of God with the Spirit or apart from the Spirit. And I don't have to tell you, right, it's a rhetorical question, that keeping the law without the Spirit of God is hopeless. But when we are united to Christ by faith, says Paul, when we are married to Him, we receive the Spirit of God and we can serve Him in the newness of the Spirit. We still keep the law of God. The law of God's not being dispensed with. We're approaching it in a new way, in newness of the Spirit. Not in the oldness of the letter. In other words, just me and the law. 
now that's going to fail. But me and the Spirit of God coming to the law, now that will be successful. Now, the obvious conclusion then would be, and, uh, and this is my first point then on my outline there, there must be a problem with the law. The law must somehow be sinful. This wretched, evil thing that the law is. We want to get rid of the law as fast as possible. But notice what Paul says. And by the way, you, you often hear language like this in churches. That the law is bad. If, if, to, to try to keep the law, to keep the commandments, why? That's just legalism. Now to keep the law in the oldness of the letter, right, without the Spirit of God, that's legalism. But again, Paul's not dispensing with the law. Look what he says in verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Is, the law, is there something wrong with the law? Is the law sinful? Paul says, no, may it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to no sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, thou shalt not covet. So the law itself, congregation, is perfect. That's what Paul says. It's good. In fact, the function of the law is to expose my sin. That's what it does. Paul said, I, I wouldn't have known what coveting was. I wouldn't have felt convicted of the sin of coveting if I hadn't read in the commandment, thou shalt not covet. So in that sense, the law is good. It does that. The law is the measure of right and wrong. But then in verse 8, but sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Now children, listen to me now. Paul is saying here that there's this monster now, I'm not trying to be silly now. I'm being honest with you. This is what Paul says. Us. There's this monster that lives within us. That monster's name is sin. It is the most dreadful creature that you ever can imagine. It is Satan himself. This monster of sin that lives within us. But it sleeps. Many times it, it, it sleeps. It's, it's dormant, you might say. But when the law comes, says Paul, this monster comes alive. Sin, sin rises up. And, and what Paul is saying here, congregation, is that just knowing what God says, thou shalt not do, that there is within us this desire to do it just because God says not to do it. God says, thou shalt not covet. Paul said, before that, this monster of sin was, was kind of sleeping within me. But as soon as I saw God's command, thou shalt not covet, this monster rose up. And I eagerly desired to do exactly what God had just told me not to do. Paul even says there in verse 8, but sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. God's law, it not only exposes our sin, Paul says it generates sin, it, it, it brings sin to life to the surface. You know, I, I read a story one time. Uh, again, I, and I, I'm not trying to be humorous here, but I read a story one time 
of this hotel that had uh, rooms that overlooked the river. And the hotel constantly had trouble with people that would, would fish out the window. They would throw their fishing line in off the, out of the window and fish in the river. They put signs up, don't fish off the, the ledges, off the porches, off these, out these windows. And, and they, could not, they could not bring this problem to stop until a congregation, they took the signs away. When they took the signs of the way, no one else fished from off the windows, from off the porches that overlooked the river. The very existence of the command, don't do this, produced in people a desire to do it. This is what Paul is teaching here. Now notice, congregation, the problem isn't with the law. The law is perfect and good. It's meant to do people good. But Paul continues. He says in verse 9, I was once alive apart from the law. Now, alive here doesn't mean like biologically living. It means he was doing pretty well for himself. He was alive. He was pretty happy with himself. And it was without the law. That monster that lived within him was more or less didn't manifest itself so much. It was kind of sleepy. It was dormant. I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin became alive. It sprang to life. This monster came alive and I died. And of course, all this is, is to be understood spiritually, isn't it? Paul was once alive. He was doing quite well for himself. The law didn't, the law wasn't a part of his life at that time. And, and again, whether Paul is talking here about his own personal life or whether he's talking about Christians generally, I tend to think the latter, that he's, he's talking more about, about people generally, not necessarily about himself. But at any rate, whatever the case may be, Paul is saying that there's, you know, we, can, we can get along pretty well for ourselves, but then the Spirit of God brings the law to us. Here comes the law. Here comes the commandments. Do this, do this, don't do that, don't do that. And now sin comes alive. Not only do we see sin, for what it is, right? The law says, thou shalt not covet. Now Paul sees that he covets. But it actually produces in him the desire to covet, the desire to commit adultery, the desire to lie and steal and to take God's name in vain. That, that monster comes alive in us, even just by reading and seeing the law. And what was the result of that? And I died, right? Now Paul sees himself under the sentence of condemnation that the law not only pronounces him guilty, but actually stirs up within him the desire to sin even more. And Paul dies. What happened to his life? He used to think pretty well of himself. Now he sees himself as under the condemnation of the law of God. He's, he's died. He's dead. He's guilty. It's as if in God's courtroom, the hammer has fallen, crashed, guilty as charged. This monster killed him. In verse 10, Paul says, And this commandment, this law, which was to result in life, it was meant to do him good, proved to result in death for me. It killed him. Judicially, it killed him before the law of God. He saw himself as guilty. And he saw this monster for what it was. And, and, and he was horrified by it. And he, he dies spiritually. It was supposed to bring him life. Instead, it killed him. In verse 11, For sin taking an opportunity through the commandment, 
deceived me. And through it, that is through the law, killed me. Now congregation, who did the killing? Paul says, I died, right? He says the commandment was supposed to bring life instead of brought death. But who did the killing? Did the law kill Paul? No, it wasn't the law that killed Paul. It was sin. Law simply brought to life this dreadful monster that lurks within. And Paul says, so then the law is holy, verse 12, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Again, Paul is saying what he said already. There's nothing wrong with the law. The law is holy and perfect. Verse 13, therefore did that which is good become a cause of death for me? In other words, did the law kill me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin. Sin killed him. In order that it might be shown to be sin. By affecting my death through that which is good. So that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. Congregation, what does Paul see of himself now? And again, whether it's Paul or whether it's, he's speaking more generally here, I leave that alone. But what does Paul see of himself now? He got along pretty well without the law. When he didn't understand the law and all its depth and all its spirituality, all that it requires of people, all its perfection, he got along pretty well. He was alive. But when the law came, when the Spirit of God set home the law of God on the heart of this man or this woman, whoever it may be, this monster comes to life. Paul now begins to see that not only is he a sinner, but that there is a a fountain of sin that wells up within him. There's this monster that comes up. And Paul now dies. No longer can he think well of himself. In fact, he says that the very reason, right, the, the title of the sermon, What the Law Does, and now Paul sees that the very function of the law in his life was to show him that his sin is sin. Now, what does that mean? He says here that sin might become utterly sinful. Now, congregation, he sees the cause of his misery as he's never seen it before. Sin before was an oversight, a mistake. Oh, we're all sinners. But now Paul sees that sin is, is, is such an horrific offense to God himself. Sin is reaching up and slapping God. Sin brings to, or, or, or the law brings to life this sin that Paul had never even seen in himself before. And, and the result of it was that when he sees it, he dies. Paul sees a hell within himself. <coughs> Well, that's what the law does, congregation. Our catechism says, how do you come to know your misery? And the answer was, the law of God tells me. And now, congregation, we see right from Romans 7 how that happened. That the law exposed Paul's sin and even produced sin in him. You might say that Paul would say to himself, what kind of monster does that? What kind of monster sins just because God says, don't do it? He wants to do it. That's what Paul discovered in himself. I have five truths then. Five truths that I want to draw out of this lesson. And first congregation is the law is the perfect standard of God's will. That's truth number one. And we need to be clear about that, right? There's nothing wrong with the law itself. Again, in many 
uh, churches, they, they dwell so extensively on the badness of the law that you begin to think there's something wrong with the law itself. No, the problem is not with the law. The law is the perfect standard of God's will. How does God want us to live? The law is the measure of every action, whether it is good or whether it is bad. The second truth, that in every person there is this natural inclination towards sin. And this is the depth of our misery then, congregation. It's not just that everyone sins. That'd be bad enough. But it's, that, it, it's deeper than that yet. It's down into the depths of our character that there is this, this fountain of sin, this factory of sin within us. That sin uh, just is, is constantly being produced. At the, at the bottom of our heart, there is this depravity, right? That's the theological term we use to talk about this. There is this depravity. There's this production of sin within us. In the scriptural language, the Bible will often talk, talk about the heart of man is depraved. It's not just that we're sinners. It's the, the, the actions of our, of our, the actions that we make every day flow from a, 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 a basis of sin, as it were. That's the second truth. And the third truth that was, is then made clear here, congregation, is this means that we can't meet the standards of God, God's law simply by trying harder. And many of you have read like the diary of Ben Franklin, right? And the, the diary of other men in those days who, and you see how hard they would try to practice virtue and to, and to root out vice in their life, right? And they would write down, you know, uh, honesty and, and, and all these different virtues, right? Uh, uh, being being um, uh, financially, right? Ben Franklin was known for that one, right? Being very uh, wise with how he spent his money and all these different things, right? To be kind, to be humble, and, and to dot every I, to cross every T. The congregation were taught that there's something within us that forbids that from even being a possibility. You know, there was something that my wife showed me the other day. Uh, there was a spot on the carpet. And, uh, and she got out some, uh, some soap and water. We cleaned it out. And it was, it was all good. It was gone. The spot was gone. And then in two days, we came back, and, and that spot was right back again. And we, and we looked, and, and there's that spot in the carpet. And we, we thought we had just scrubbed it out. Nobody had, had made a new spot there. And, you know, you scrub it out again. In a couple of days, it comes right back again. There's something deeper in the carpet, wasn't there, than just on the surface. Because you could clean the top of it. But there was something underneath there that kept coming up. And, and, and making the spot dirty again. And in the same way, congregation, we can clean up our life, right? We can, we can try to, to really dot every I, cross every T, you know, try to make right choices. But it always fails. It has to fail. Because there's a cancer within that must be dealt with first. That's the, that's the third truth. The fourth truth, then, is this. All human action is driven by this depravity. And congregation, this is what we mean in the Reformed churches when we talk about total depravity. Now by total depravity, we don't mean that everybody is, wicked, is as wicked as they possibly could be, right? Otherwise we'd all be slaughtering each other, right? And this, this world would just be a, a you know, continual warfare, right? God restrains the depravity, the wickedness of people. But by total depravity, we mean that all of our actions 
come from a heart that is completely depraved. That means that every human action is stained by this sin. And, and our depravity is not a partial depravity that we can work ourselves out of over time. It is a total depravity. The heart is depraved. As the Bible again would say, the heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? And the, fact, the fifth truth in congregation, the last one, is that it's God's law that exposes this monster, this depravity within us. God's law exposes it. And that's what the physician, that's what our instructor here in the catechism is going to do. He's going to bring the law of God and he's going to expose our sin and our guilt. This means congregation too. That if it's the law that exposes the cause of our misery, then it's our guilt for transgressing that law that is the cause of our misery. And actually, that, that segues into this first application, this first point of application. See your psychologist. Dear congregation, you must know that almost all psychology and counseling that you encounter in this world begins with the premise, it's not your fault. It seems that every counselor, and thank God for Christian counselors who operate from different presuppositions, but almost all secular counseling and psychology today starts with this premise, it's not your fault. Now congregation, I know that there are many miseries in our life that are not our fault. I understand that. Right? Or not immediately our fault. Right? If a person has a heart attack or, or has cancer or any of other number of different aliens gets in a car accident, right? Uh, th that's not necessarily his immediate fault. Right? And, and I see wisdom in, in a person understanding that. But let's understand, congregation, that when we talk about our misery in its general understanding, the gospel comes to us in the scriptures and says, it is your fault. The first step on the path of life, congregation, is to embrace this very uncomfortable truth. That our misery is our fault. It's our guilt for transgressing the law of God. And when we have transgressed the law of God, we bring all this deluge of misery down upon us. And congregation, that is so critical that we understand. And it's so beautiful that our catechism, it's not beautiful, but it's so helpful, it's so healthy for us to know at the very beginning of the path of life that it is our guilt that brought us into this misery. You see, if the law of God exposes our misery, it exposes our misery because it shows us how we've transgressed from it, right? If something other than the law of God showed us our misery, right? I remember once uh, in the seminary, uh, Dr. David Murray went downtown Grand Rapids. He and his, uh, and his cameraman. And Dr. Murray would ask people, why is there so much trouble in this world? And the number one answer that he received was the environment. The environment. You see, congregation, this is such an uncomfortable truth for us to face. 
that we want to look every which way. And, and modern secular psychology enables people to do that. To sidestep this obvious truth that our misery is our fault. In fact, you cannot make any progress on the path of life from this point forward until you own that truth, congregation. That brings me to my second point of application. Until we own that reality, that my misery is my fault, that it's my sin that brought me into this predicament. And again, I go back to the, the message I preached last Sunday. I'm not asking you now, congregation, whether you had an experience of conviction of sin in your past life. It may be, and that's a wonderful thing. That's a precious moment. But congregation, my question is much more direct to you this evening. Do you own it now? Do you own it right now? Do you confess it before God in your own conscience? This truth, that I am my own fault. Again, I remember in my youth, a minister who would say that when God the Spirit, the Holy Spirit begins to work in the life of a person, He brings them to that place in their life where they are willing to sign their own death sentence. That's a striking expression, congregation. That the law of God has given its verdict. Guilty, you must die. And when the Spirit of God is working in us to the extent that we are willing to own this truth, and it's as if we take our own pen and we sign our name to that sentence. Yes, I am worthy of death. Paul says, the law came Sin sprang to life, and I died. Now, he didn't die physically, right? He died. He saw himself as worthy of eternal death because of his guilt and his sin. He, he was willing at that point to sign his own death sentence. And in the last place, congregation, my third point of application is don't dismiss Congregation, these are, these are tough sermons to hear, difficult sermons to hear. They should be, by the way. If these are easy sermons for you to hear, there's something wrong. These are difficult sermons to hear. Don't dismiss them. In fact, I have to say, congregation, worse is coming. The catechism doesn't stop here. But we have a million strategies for trying to sidestep, to dodge God's arrow of conviction as it comes tonight. And I just can go to the example of the woman at the well, right? Because when Jesus said, go call your husband, she says, I don't have a husband. He says, you have five husbands, right? He accuses her of her sin. What does she do? She dodges and weaves like the best of us, doesn't she? She says, well, and she brings up a theological uh, controversy, right? She says, well, you know, you people believe that you should worship in Jerusalem. We think we people should worship here. Jesus says, no, 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 no. Jesus doesn't, doesn't accept that, does he? And he drives home to the point of worshiping God in spirit and truth. But we too, congregation, we as Christians in, in the congregation of Covenant United Reformed Church, we have these strategies too. I, as a preacher, have a strategy, right? We all want to dodge this arrow of conviction that comes sailing at us this evening. Some people will say, well, I've been a Christian all my life. I, I mean, I, my sins are forgiven. And of course, again, there's always a kernel of truth at these things, isn't it? But congregation, if you're using your status as a Christian to dodge this truth, 
right? Then you miss what we talked about last Sunday. Remember I said that what the catechism is leading us through is not stages, right? As if we, we live our life for a while and, and we experience our sin and we experience our misery and God convicts us of it. And then we leave that stage behind and we come to a new stage of gospel liberty and deliverance. And we never look at our sin again. Congregation, that's really just a, a strategy again for trying to miss the force of what the catechism and what scripture is teaching us tonight. This is for Christians. This is for, this is for unbelievers too, but tonight I preach to Christians that what a blessing it is when the Spirit of God will bring the law and set it before us and we see the monster, the sin that lives within us and we, as it were, die under that conviction. That's a happy moment in the life of a Christian congregation. So many of us sing, I put that in there, oh, for a closer walk with thee. We might sing, Jesus, keep me near the cross. How does that happen? Well, congregation, one way that God does that in our life is to set before us our sin and our guilt. God will bring us closer to see the glory of His own grace and the beauty of Christ by showing us the ugliness of our own guilt and our own sin. Congregation, we can be so thankful for the catechism. It's so faithful. The catechism is not going to cure our wound superficially as we, as we started the service off in the call to worship. Catechism is going to take us into the depths of it. It's not going to put a band-aid on that cancer. And I really feel, congregation, that we, we, we miss so much of the beauty of the gospel when we fail to own the truth of what the catechism is impressing upon us. You know, you, you hear statements of people will say, well, that, that's miserable sinner Christianity. That's not, that's not the religion of the Bible. Well, if this is all I preached on, that, that, that would be true, right? That, that would be out of balance, of course. But congregation, the unfortunate thing is, is that, again, we, we, we try to dismiss these truths. And, and we can, and, and one way of doing that, again, is, is by accusing the, the preacher or the catechism of, of nursing along this kind of miserable sinner idea. But I would suggest to you, congregation, that that's just another strategy to try to dodge the arrow of God's conviction as it comes to us this evening. Congregation, I think a better approach is embrace that. Sit before that physician. Let him open up that wound. Let him expose that cancer for what it is. It's the only way to continue along the path of life. Congregation, the, the truths, the glorious truths that follow in the catechism are meaningless if we don't own this truth in the first place. Congregation, I, I preach to myself this evening. I hope you understand that. This is as much for me as for anyone. Where does it lead us to? Where does this end? Where does this take us? Well, I didn't read it. But in, the, in verse 24... Paul cries out, wretched man that I am. Who will set me free from the body of this death? Well, that's a happy question, congregation. Who will set me free from this body of death? And the catechism is going to take us there too. You can be sure of it. But for now, congregation, it's going to set that knife into that cancer and expose it. And I pray God gives us the grace to submit to it to own it 
and even to embrace it. May God bless these words to us. Let us pray. Almighty God and merciful Father, what a a message to have to deliver, what a message to have to receive. But Lord, please help us to receive it this evening. We're professional. uh, We're so good at dodging the arrows of conviction as they come. We don't want to really believe that there is within us this monster of sin that wants to sin even because we're commanded not to sin. Lord, we want to dismiss that thought. I want to dismiss that thought. We want to look at something else, to move on, to move past this. But Lord, help us to look it full in the face this evening. Help us to see the message that the law of God brings us and to submit to it, to kiss the Son, lest He be angry and we perish from the way. Lord, I pray that as we proceed through these lessons in the Catechism, that you'd give us the grace to bow under them, to submit to them, and to receive them. I pray, Lord, for anyone here who, who may resent this, who may resist this message. Lord, I pray that your spirit would set the law before that person and show them what Paul saw. Show them, Lord, what we have seen and what we need to see again and again in our life. And we do pray, Lord, oh, for a closer walk with thee. Jesus, keep me near the cross. And if that means seeing our sin and transgressions again, Lord, then we accept it. Help us never to sit here, Lord. Help us never to dwell on this. But help us to see that even this sin, even this guilt, drives us out of ourselves to the mediator, whom we hope to hear about also from the catechism in due time. Lord, we commit this message then into your hands. And pray that you would bless it to your glory and to our salvation. And all these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.